Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 11th, 2021. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, we are going to present part three of our commentary on the epistles of John. This is titled Christ and Antichrist. In our last presentation in this commentary on the epistles of John, which we titled The Propitiation for Sin, we sought to explain how the law stood in the way of any reconciliation between Yahweh God and the divorced children of Israel. Among other things, we cited the law where it states that every man, which includes every woman, everything in the law that's good for a man is good for a woman, must die for his own sin. When a man sins a sin for which he is liable to death, then he himself must die, and there is no other option under the law. But the ways in which the law obstructed the reconciliation of Yahweh and Israel is evident in even more ways than we had explained. For example, once the divorce of Israel was announced in the words of the prophet Hosea. Yahweh instructed the prophet in Hosea chapter 3, where we read, Then said Yahweh unto me, Go yet, love a woman beloved of her friend, yet an adulteress, according to the love of Yahweh toward the children of Israel, because Yahweh loved an adulteress, who looked to other gods and loved flagons of wine because much of their unjust intercourse with other nations is, or was, or still is, in the pursuit of trade. In Hosea chapter 2, Yahweh had already spoken of Israel and said, And she shall follow after her lovers, committing adultery. But she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then was it better with me than now. In spite of that, Yahweh had also sworn later in that same chapter that he would betroth Israel once again and betroth Israel forever. This is a paradox as we must know that Yahweh would not transgress his own law. So we must ask, could Israel return to her first husband? Or could the husband take back an adulterous wife? The law forbids that, as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 24. When a man has taken a wife and married her, and it comes to pass that she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house, which is exactly what Yahweh did to the children of Israel. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the later husband hates her, and writes her a bill of divorcement and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the later husband dies, 
which took her to be his wife. Her former husband, which sent her away, Yahweh, who divorced Israel, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. And thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which Yahweh thy God has given thee for an inheritance. So even if Israel sought to return to Yahweh, there was no way under the law by which that was possible, and Yahweh's law does not change. One of our detractors, a sophist, I will stop short of calling him anything else. He is certainly a sophist. He immediately responded that the righteousness of Christ is outside of the law, like we wouldn't agree with that. That is absolutely true. Then he accused us of denying aspects of Scripture, which we had never denied. But Christ himself had professed, as it is found in Matthew chapter 5, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. So we cannot imagine that his reconciliation with the children of Israel would violate the law in any way. Yet we can be confident that the ordinances against the children of Israel were removed on the cross of Christ, as Paul had explained in his epistle to the Colossians. But furthermore, we have already explained that Christ, the bridegroom of the children of Israel, cannot have his father's wife according to the law. And if that law was no longer valid and in force, it would not have been just for Paul of Tarsus to denounce a man who had done that very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, an epistle which was written shortly before Paul left Ephesus around 56 AD. So the law is still valid and Christians are expected to keep its commandments. The children of Israel were under penalty of death according to the law, and there was no way around that penalty according to the law. Repeating ourselves once again, there is nothing in the law which provides that a son, whether a son of God or of Israel, and of course Christ was both, could die in order to satisfy the penalty of a mother's sin against a husband, or the sins of an entire people against their God. So nothing in the law explains how Christ was a propitiation for the sins of Israel. But Christ was indeed a propitiation for the sins of Israel. It's just not explained how that could be within the law. As Yahweh had promised in Hosea chapter 13, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. 
and where he said that repentance shall be hid from my eyes, Yahweh is strengthening his promise to redeem Israel from the grave, that he will not change his mind in that regard. So there are several paradoxes. A son cannot be put to death to satisfy the law for the sins committed by a parent or by anyone else, as that is contrary to the law. A husband cannot justly be reconciled to an adulteress, as that is an abomination according to the law. A son cannot have his father's wife, as that is also an offense for which death is prescribed in the law. But in spite of these laws, Yahweh promised that Israel would live, and he promised to redeem and to betroth Israel forever. He promised to do these things while at the same time fulfilling the law and declaring that it would not fail until it was fulfilled. Therefore, with all of these circumstances preventing the reconciliation of Israel, we explained from the words of Paul of Tarsus in Romans chapter 7, in our last presentation here, how Christ was a propitiation in spite of the law, but neither changing nor abrogating the law, which is that he is Yahweh God incarnate, the husband of Israel, dying in order to release the wife from the law of her husband. A son cannot do that. Only the husband himself can do that. So Christ is also the bridegroom. And Christ is also the way, the truth, and the life. The redemption of Israel. And none of these things flaunt the law because he is Yahweh. He is God the Father. He is God the Creator. He is God the Son. He is all of those things. Christ is the Redeemer. Yet, in the words of the prophets, Yahweh alone is the Redeemer of Israel. And the prophets cannot be wrong, but neither are the apostles of Christ. That is precisely why Paul made such an explanation as he did. And we should not even have to explain it as Paul had written his explanation quite clearly. <clears throat> it's just that silly, supposed Christians who want to imagine there's more than one God, or that God is more than one person, or divide God into little pieces and apportion them in different places, they want to do that. They simply can't believe or understand that there is only one God, and that that God is the Father, and that God is the Son. And the Son is the image of the person of the Father. He's not his own person. To understand Paul's explanation in Romans chapter 7, we must understand and accept the fact that Yahshua Christ is Yahweh God incarnate. He is the Father, the husband of Israel dying to release the wife from the law. Thy maker is thine husband. And at the same time, he is the Son, the Redeemer of Israel, whom Yahweh God had promised that he himself would be. So Paul wrote in part, 
For the woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. Yet, while even this is not specified in the law, there are examples of it in practice. When Naomi's two sons had died, we read in Ruth chapter 1 in verse 8, And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. Yahweh will deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So they were released from any obligations which they had to their husbands. Although Ruth would not have it. And she chose to stay with Naomi. So in that manner, we may see that the righteousness of God is apart from the law. The only way that he could free Israel from the judgments of the law was to die so that Israel would be free from the law of the husband. But what Paul had written in Romans chapter 3 is this. But now the righteousness of God without the law, or apart from the law, is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In order for all of the conditions of the law and the prophets to be satisfied, Yahshua Christ must be Yahweh God incarnate as his own son. And that is the only way that the husband could have died to release the wife from the penalty of the law, as Paul had explained. There is no other way possible by which Israel could live. Anything else, any other belief in the nature of God and Christ creates all sorts of conflict within the scripture. Once we understand that Yahshua Christ is God incarnate, but that he prayed to the Father as an example to men, then all of the imagined conflicts are resolved. They all disappear. We shall return to discuss the inseparable nature of God and Christ as John presents it later here in this chapter. But now John turns to the adversaries of Christ, by which we should also know their true nature. And picking up from second I'm sorry, from first John chapter two, verse eighteen, which is the point at which we stopped short in our last presentation, the apostle writes Little children, it is the last hour, and just as you have heard that the Antichrist comes, even now many Antichrists have been born from which we know that it is the last hour. And perhaps they heard the Antichrist comes from Daniel or from certain other prophecies that are to this day related to the Antichrist, and not all of those interpretations are bad. But most of the interpretations of antiquity do not identify the Antichrist correctly. Translating this passage, the King James Version virtually ignores the verb ginomahi, which, according to Liddell and Scott, means, in its absolute sense, to come into being, 
opposed to another verb, ainahi, which is simply to be. So, ainahi is to be. And used in the third person plural, ainahi would be they are. But ginomahi is to come into being. Liddell and Scott go on to describe it of persons. To be born. Here, in this passage, it is certainly to be born. As the verb is in the indicative perfect active form, which is a past tense. So it can't be they are, or there are many antichrists, as the King James Version has it. It can't be that, because the verb is past tense. But John's using the past tense verb here of people to refer to people of his present time. So it must be referring to their having been born and not simply to the fact that they are, for which an appropriate present tense form of Ainahi would have been sufficient, where the verb should not have been in a past tense. So it is certainly, without a doubt, even now many antichrists have been born. And here it is evident that antichrists come into the world as a matter of their birth. And John informs us in his next verse that these antichrists are not of Israel, where he says, They came out from us, but they were not from of us. For if they were from of us, they would have abided with us. But so that they would be made manifest that they are all not from of us. Here John speaks of the inevitable separation of two groups of people who were not of the same people to begin with, explaining the divergence with the assertion that they were not from of us, and suggesting that if they had been, then they would also be Christians, but that instead they are now antichrists. So John is repeating another concept taught by Christ, which is found in his gospel, for which we may cite any one of several chapters. But we will choose to cite John chapter 10, where the following exchange is recorded. Then the Jews, then came the Jews round about him, and Jews is certainly appropriate in this context, but it really should be Judeans. Then came the Judeans round about him, and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. From his works they should have already understood that he was the Christ, but they didn't. They rejected it. Jesus answered them, I told you. And you believe not, which is probably a reference to what had occurred earlier in John chapter 5, but possibly also in John chapter 8. I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. They came out from us, but they were not from of us, as John says here. Christ says, you don't believe because you were not my sheep. 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that they weren't his sheep because they didn't believe. Christ is saying just the opposite. They weren't expected to believe because they were not his sheep. His sheep hear his voice. And I give unto them eternal life. Goats don't get eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And as John said, for if they were from of us, they would have abided with us. No one would have been able to pluck them out of his hand. But they weren't from of them. They weren't from of Israel. They were something different. My father, which gave them to me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Not two, not three, not six, not one and a half. They are one. Christ is the image of the person of God. God is the person. Christ is the image of the person. The operation of God in the real world as a man among his people. The fullness of the divinity got bodily. I just don't understand how people don't get this. The opponents of Christ did not believe him because they were not a sheep, as I said unto you, which seems to be a reference to the lengthy argument which he had with them, as it is recorded in John chapter 8, which had happened a short while before. The events of John chapter 8 occurred at the Feast of Tabernacles which is attested in John chapter 7, verse 2, which was in late September or, or early October. And the events at the end of John chapter 10 had occurred a few months later at the Feast of Dedication, evident in John chapter 10, verse 22. The Feast of Dedication was in December. That feast was not an Old Testament feast. But it was initiated by the Hasmoneans around 165 BC, after the temple was restored since it had been defiled and damaged by the Seleucids. The word for dedication in Hebrew is Hanukkah, and that is where today's Jews derive the name for their modern December abomination. Ironically, Jews continued to celebrate the restoration of a temple that was never theirs and which was destroyed again in 70 AD, not yet being rebuilt. Then they claim they're going to rebuild a third temple. It's really a fourth temple because the third temple was Herod's temple, which was different than Zerubbabel's temple. But that's another story. <clears throat> So if John warned his readers that those who were born as antichrists came out from us, but they were not from of us, then Christians should have an obligation to investigate the scriptures and the history of the era in order to find out how that could be, that there were Judeans who were not of us, as John says, where he is writing to Christians in Ephesus. Around the same time, the Apostle John had also recorded the series of visions, which he had received on Patmos as the revelation of Yahshua Christ. 
In the Revelation, Christ is recorded as having warned the churches of both Smyrna and Philadelphia regarding those who say they are Jews or Judeans and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The word Antichrist is abused by the denominational churches who ignore the plain message here in John's epistles. These epistles are the only place that the word Antichrist appears in Scripture. Yet the churches do not use the word with the same meaning as John had used it. In John's epistles, the word Antichrist described those who had denied that Yahshua is the Christ in his own time. And therefore, it can only describe Jews. The word cannot be properly applied to Romans, as Roman pagans would not expect a Christ or a Messiah in the manner in which the Hebrews had. And therefore, Romans would be too ignorant of the issues involved to be expected to make an informed decision. So the word Antichrist, as John had used it, can only refer to Jews. And while we see that Antichrists are born, as John described them, it can only refer to Edomite Jews and not to Israelite Jews. While John does not give a lesson in history here, to explain how certain Judeans were not from of us, Paul of Tarsus did give such a lesson in Romans chapter 9, where he said that for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, where he professed to praying only for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, and where he proceeded by comparing Jacob and Esau, likening one to vessels of mercy and the other to vessels of destruction, which are obvious references to the collective offspring of each of them. Therefore, seeing the testimony of Paul, that at least many of the Judeans are not Israel, but are actually of Esau, we can understand and accept the more detailed account of how the Edomites became known as Judeans, which is found in the histories of Flavius Josephus, and for which there are also corroborating statements by other historians, such as Strabo of Cappadocia. And then we can understand and accept how John said they came out from us, but they were not from of us. In any event, Romans chapter 9 clearly identifies as Edomites those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Many times here, we have provided the citations from Josephus and the corroboration from Strabo that the Edomites occupied Judea after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations. Judah, they actually occupied, I should say, Judah and Israel 
after the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations, which the prophet Ezekiel also explains in Ezekiel chapter 35, and how those Edomites were forcibly converted to Judaism under the Hasmonean high priests, namely John Hyrcanus and Alexander Janius, in the 2nd century B.C. While we shall not repeat it all now, we did recently discuss it in part 23 of our recent commentary on the Gospel of John, which was titled, The Devil Has Children, and the Edomites are Among His Children. In book 13 of his Antiquities, Josephus gives details concerning those forced conversions of Edomites to Judaism in nearly three dozen cities and regions of Palestine under the rule of the Hasmoneans, who are also called the Maccabees. So we may see here from John and from Paul and also from other sources both within and apart from the Bible, that the opponents of Christ in Judea were not true Israelites. Although under Roman rule, they bore the designation of being Judeans. Josephus, speaking of the Edomites converted to Judaism, attested that from that time, they were hereafter considered to be Jews. In turn, the Israelites of Judea who had turned to Christ had eventually lost the designation of being Judeans or Jews, assuming the name of Christians, so that in the end, only the enemies of Christ were ever called Jews. Now John makes a contrasting remark, and he says in verse 20 of 2 John chapter 2, Yet you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, and I actually had to change the text of the Christogenian New Testament. I apologize for having followed an ancient mistake. I don't know how I did that. The Codexes Alexandrinus and Ephraimisiri and the majority text have, and you know all things. But here we have corrected our own reading of the text as the form of the adjective pas, which is a masculine plural form in the nominative case, pantes, is not properly the object of the verb for know, and rather it is an adjective modifying the subject of that verb, which is the pronoun translated as you. You all know. Assuming that the intended readers of John's epistle are also familiar with John's gospel, he is informing them that they have an anointing from God, and all of them should know and understand what he is saying here, as these things are also fully evident in his gospel. So, evidently, the Antichrists are those Jews who had opposed Christ. And John is warning his readers about them once more here, as they continue to oppose Christ and to deny that Yahshua is the Christ. So in the Gospel of Christ, <clears throat> according to this statement of John's, 
we should also see the fulfillment of the word of Yahweh in Isaiah chapter 54. And all thy children shall be taught of Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of thy children. That passage in Isaiah is also from a messianic prophecy. And earlier in a chapter, we read the words of Yahweh which said, In a little wrath, I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith Yahweh thy Redeemer. Christ being the Redeemer. Until the time when Christ had died for the redemption of Israel, he had hid his face from them. So as Paul explained in Hebrews, speaking of Yahshua Christ, where he described him as the express image of his person, speaking in reference to Yahweh God. We may see that Christ is the face of Yahweh, which is no longer hid from his people, and begins to teach them anew. And he himself had exclaimed to Philip that he that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou, show us the Father? Christ is God, teaching his people new, anew as it is prophesied in Isaiah. Now John expresses the expectation that his readers did already know these things. In verse 21 of 1 John chapter 2, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because any lie is not from of the truth. And this also seems to evoke the words of Christ to his adversaries, which are found in John chapter 8. In verse, or I should say from verse 54, Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Christ had already rejected his adversaries, even before they rejected him. Where, for example, in John chapter 5, he had told them, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. Of course, he never expected them to. I receive not honor from men, but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. So as a result of such a testimony, John exclaims here, Who is a liar? If not, he denying that Yahshua is the Christ. He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son, denying that Yahshua is the Christ. His adversaries also deny God, as Christ had told them later in John chapter 5. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. 
There is one that accuses you, even Moses, in whom you trust. For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? In the Old Testament, actual people and events very often stood as types for the Messiah, which are prophecies in themselves. And the apostles of Christ later cited them as prophecies. There is a prophecy in Malachi chapter 3 which says, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek, which is Yahweh God himself, shall suddenly come to his temple, which proves that it is Yahweh God himself, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith Yahweh of hosts. But a very similar statement was made by Moses of Joshua the son of Nun in Exodus chapter 23, which reads, Behold, I send an angel, or messenger, I send an angel before thee, to keep thee in the way, and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him, and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Joshua the son of Nun had succeeded Moses in the leadership of Israel in the fleshly world. Yet Joshua Christ, who bore the same Hebrew name as Joshua, succeeded Moses in the greater plan of Yahweh for Israel. So the apostles themselves, in Acts chapter 4, had understood another reference in the writings of Moses to be a prophecy of Christ, where it says in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Yahweh thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him you shall hearken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. But of course, Moses prophesied of Christ in other ways, such as in Genesis chapter 3, where we read, And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. And again, in a prophecy concerning Judah, in Genesis chapter 49, which is also a type for the victorious Messiah of the Revelation, which says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall be the gathering of the people, binding his foal under the vine and his ass's colt under the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes, the blood of the wrath of Yahweh, Revelation chapters 16 through 19. His eyes shall be red with wine, and his teeth white with milk. Upon his triumphant march into Jerusalem, Christ had come sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass, 
In fulfillment of yet another prophecy found in Zechariah chapter 9, but which evokes that prophecy concerning Judah. While we may discuss other passages in Moses, perhaps it is more fitting to see from the gospel accounts what John and the other disciples had thought about the nature of the Christ, so that we may see the significance of what John thought it was to deny that Yahshua is the Christ. In Matthew chapter 2, the Magi had come from the east, and they are portrayed as saying, Where is he that is born king of the Judeans? For we have seen his star in the east, and are come to worship him. While the Magi later found him and rejoiced, Upon their having asked that question in Jerusalem, we see that when Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. But according to Flavius Josephus, Herod was also an Edomite. The fact that Yahshua Christ was indeed the legitimate king of the Judeans was a point of contention among the Judeans at his crucifixion. Christians now recognize Yahshua Christ as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Yet, in Hosea chapter 13, speaking of Israel cast off in punishment, we read in verse 9, from verse 9, because we're going to carry it to verse 11, O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself, but in me is thine help. Yahweh God speaking. I will be thy king. Where is any other that may save thee in all thy cities? And thy judges, of whom thou sayest, give me a king and princes. Referring back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I gave thee a king in mine anger, and took him away in my wrath. In other words, there's going to be no other king, but where Yahweh says, I will be thy king. Yahshua Christ, Yahweh God incarnate, is the fulfillment of this prophecy where Yahweh had said, I will be thy king. In Luke chapter 2, when Christ is born in a manger, in a shed, out in a field where sheep are typically fed and spend the night. We read, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of Yahweh came upon them, and the glory of Yahweh shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. I'm citing the King James Version. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I will bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people, or all the people, properly. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. 
but in Isaiah chapter 43, where the word of Yahweh is addressing Israel in captivity. We read, For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia and Sheba for thee. Then, a little further on in the chapter, Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me, which would be fulfilled with the coming ministry of Christ. That's how they would know and believe him when these things actually happen. So Christ is Yahweh saying, I am thy Savior, and that you would know and believe me. And understand that I am he. And Christ said, on more than one occasion, I am he. Upbraiding his adversaries for not believing it. Ye are my witnesses, saith Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed. There is only one God. Neither shall there be after me. There is still only one God. I, even I, am Yahweh, and besides me, there is no Savior. So he must be Yahweh Yahshua Christ must be Yahweh as Savior. There is no Savior besides Yahweh, and there was no God formed besides Yahweh. So if Christ is God and Savior, he must be Yahweh incarnate and not a separate God or a separate person. Upon encountering Christ, Andrew had exclaimed to Simon Peter, as it is recorded in John chapter 1, that we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. The Hebrew form of the word for Messiah is used often in Scripture of men who are anointed as kings or as priests, or of the people of Israel as they were chosen by God. However, in the sense where Andrew had used it, it is most apparent in Daniel chapter 9, in the 70 weeks prophecy by which the people of the time must have anticipated his coming. So the Samaritan woman at the well, who was also an Israelite, had exclaimed, as it is recorded in John chapter 4, I know that Messiah comes, who is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Thy children shall be taught of Yahweh, as we read in Isaiah. The Gospel of John reveals that Andrew, John, and Simon, Simon Peter, were disciples of John the Baptist before they encountered Christ, and perhaps it was from John that they had concluded that Yahshua was the Messiah when they met him. 
But the further experience and pro- experiences and professions of the other witnesses in Scripture, such as the Magi and the Samaritan woman, attest that the people were gladly anticipating the Messiah, and that they understood the nature of that Messiah as being of God and as being God. In Luke chapter 1, Mary, who was yet pregnant, was addressed by her cousin, Elizabeth, who said, And whence is this to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? So Elizabeth was already referring to the unborn Christ child as the Lord, using the Greek word kurios, which was a title for Yahweh. And that is the context in which she used it. Otherwise, how could an unborn child be her Lord? So the people of the first century understood the nature of the Christ. And after the Jews meddled with Christianity for three or four hundred years, it was debated by Christians and we ended up with a trinity and three gods, one of them worshipped by Jews and Christians. How did that happen? That's a Canaanite bait-and-switch. That's a trick if I ever saw one. On the basis of these prophecies and many others, John now asserts that each denying the Son has not the Father either. He, being in agreement with the Son, also has the Father. The first clause contains a word, ude, which is split in our translation as not and either. We may have written, each denying the Son, neither has the Father. The entire second clause is not found in the manuscripts of the majority text. But something similar appears in italics in the King James Version. The clause, as we have translated it, does appear in the all of the ancient codices that testify to this epistle of John. The 4th century codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus and the 5th century codices Alexandrinus and Ephraim Siri. Each denying the Son has not the Father either. There is no part of God without Christ, and therefore one cannot have one without the other. As Paul had said, Christ is the image of the person of God, and Christ is the full, full is the fullness of the divinity bodily. Christ being the Lamb slain since the foundation of the world, there has never been any part of God void of Christ. Because he planned to come into his creation from the beginning. As Christ himself had said, as it is recorded in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And I don't know why, but most of my citations are from the King James Version this evening. 
The so-called Trinity and other false doctrines, which seek to separate God and Christ, leave an opening for the concept that people can worship God apart from Christ and therefore without Christ. That in turn leads to cooperation and ecumenism with antichrists, which in itself is an act of blasphemy against God. Jews, Muslims, and others do not worship the same God as Christians because they do not worship Christ. And Christ did not come to them in the first place, so they cannot worship him. The gods of the Jews and Muslims are idols, and they have no part with Yahweh, the God of creation. In the second clause here, a present participle masculine singular form of the verb homologeo is treated as a substantive and rendered he being in agreement, as we have rendered it. As it is accompanied with a masculine singular definite article. Where the King James Version has in italics the words, he that acknowledgeth. The meaning of homologeo is much stronger, as it is defined by Liddell and Scott to mean to agree with, to say the same thing as, which is precisely what it most literally means. Homologeo, to speak the same. And then it means to correspond or agree with, whether of persons or things. You can acknowledge someone, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're agreeing with someone. So the King James Version, even what it has in italics, is not sufficient. To agree with Christ is much more than merely than merely to acknowledge him, which any man can claim to do without any worldly consequences, while he ignores what Christ himself had said. To agree with Christ is to believe statements such as, I am come but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, or to accept and obey his admonition that if you love me, keep my commandments, or even to accept the consequences of his profession that every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. Or to accept the idea that he kills children who are the products of fornication. Race-mixed children. And Christ professes that he will kill them in Revelation chapter 2. To agree with Christ is to agree with that. So if one hears the gospel but does not do these things does not agree with these things, then it cannot be said that one also has the Father as one is not truly agreeing with Christ. So, for that same reason, John accompanies the statement with a warning in verse 24. That which you have heard from the beginning must abide in you. If that which you have heard from the beginning should abide in you, you also shall abide in the Son and in the Father. As we have explained, John's first epistle, John's first epistle, I'm sorry, 
teaches a practical application of the things which may also be learned from his gospel. So here once again, he evokes the words of Christ as they are found in John chapter 15, which we shall cite only in part. I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. And if a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men gather them, and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my love. If you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be fulfilled. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. From other passages in John, men are told to keep his commandments and the Father would abide. He and the Father would come and abide with them. Later in this epistle, John explains that to love one another is to keep the commandments. That loving one another is how, keeping the commandments is how we express our love for one another. All these things are tied together. All these things are inseparable if one is to remain on the vine, if one is to remain in Christ, if one is to abide in the Son and in the Father. So John says in verse 25 of this chapter, And this is the promise which he has promised to us, eternal life. And we have already cited the words of Christ in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Not long after the discourse of the true vine, while he was still with his disciples on the night of the Last Supper, Christ made a prayer to the Father as an example to his disciples, and we read in the opening verses of John chapter 17, These words spoke Jesus, and lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. 
Now John seems to once again refer to the Antichrists. And perhaps he reveals the reason why he even mentioned them here in this epistle. I have written these things to you in reference to those leading you astray. The form of the verb. Leading astray. Planeo may have been rendered as deceiving. The King James Version has seduce, which is appropriate, not sexual seduction, but mental seduction. That is appropriate. The word is literally to make to wander, to lead astray or to deceive in the active sense, but to wander or stray in the passive. So, metaphorically, it was also used to describe transgression. While John does not explain how anyone was leading the Christians of Ephesus astray, it seems that we may deduce that through the many positive things which he has told them here in his response, we may deduce what they were doing, what false doctrines they were spreading. Therefore, it seems that those who deny that Yahshua is the Christ have intruded into the assemblies of Ephesus in order to deceive them and lead them away from Christ. In the message to the seven churches of the Revelation, Christ had told them in the message to the church at Ephesus that I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou cannot bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them to be liars, and has borne and has patience for my name's sake, has labored and has not fainted. However, they do seem to have been led astray, where it next says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. If this is a reference to their first embrace of Christianity, then it is clear that the Ephesians abandoned what they had been taught by Paul of Tarsus, 40 years before John recorded those words in the Revelation. Of this, Paul had warned the elders of the church at Ephesus before he journeyed to Judea, where he was arrested. And he had sent for them from Miletus, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20, where once again he had said to them, in part, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So, Jews were attempting to corrupt the assembly at Ephesus between the time of Paul's writing that, or saying that, in 57 AD, and the time when John must have written this epistle, sometime around 96 AD. The attempts of Jews to spoil Christianity by infiltrating it, must have been endless and also successful in large degree, as many departures from the words of the apostles are evident in the doctrines of the various medieval churches, and especially the Roman Catholic Church.
However, the other apostles, namely Peter and Jude, were also warning of this same thing in their own epistles. So Jude said in his epistle, For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord and God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is describing the same Antichrist whom John had spoken of here. And he proceeded by speaking of the actions of those men among the Christian assemblies of his own time. Having crept in unawares, these are certainly the same men whom John described as having come out from us, but they were not from of us. Likewise, Peter, in chapter 2 of his second epistle, had warned, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who shall privily bring in damnable heresies, privily meaning privately or secretly, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. While Peter did not immediately connect such false prophets to infiltrators among the congregations of Christ, he did make that connection later, in the subsequent verses of that chapter. In turn, Paul had actually warned of intruders from among the Jews, perverting Christian assemblies in many other ways, such as where he warned in Philippians chapter 3, to beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Then again, in Galatians chapter 4, speaking of certain Judaizers, but neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren brought unawares, brought in unawares, who came in privily, again, privately or secretly, to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. The bondage which is later evident in the rituals and the false doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Now John makes a second reference to Christians as having received an anointing from God, where he writes in verse 27, And the anointing which you have received from him, it abides in you, and you have no need that one should teach you. But as his anointing, teaches us concerning all things and is true and is not a lie, then just as he has taught you, you abide in him. And sadly, I have witnessed supposed Christians who use this verse as an excuse not to study scripture, assuming to know everything simply because they claim to believe in Jesus. Here the Codex Vaticanus has charisma, which is a favor or gift, rather than charisma or anointing, where John wrote in verse 20, yet you have, I'm sorry, in verse 20, where John wrote in verse 20, yet you have an anointing from the Holy One, and where the word anointing appears here, the word for anointing is charisma, 
a noun which actually describes the substance with which one may be anointed, which was usually some sort of oil. The word is a noun from the verb creo, which is to rub or anoint with scented unguents or oil. And as it was often used in the Septuagint of the Hebrew custom of anointing, it means to anoint in token of consecration, which was customary in the anointing of kings or priests. The adjective form from Creo is Christus, which is Christ or anointed. In reference to Yahshua Christ, it is transliterated as the title Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul of Tarsus used the verb Creo, where he wrote, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God. In the Old Testament, the anointed of God often referred to kings such as David. But it was often but it also often referred to the people of Israel as a whole. And while the references are debated, it first appears in this sense in 2 Samuel chapter 2 in verses 10 and 35. The use is clearer in the 105th Psalm and repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, where it is speaking in general of the children of Israel. And we read, saying, Touch not mine anointed, and do my prophets no harm. Likewise, in the 19th Psalm, the term anointed refers to the people in general, where we read, we will rejoice in thy salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Yahweh, fulfill all thy petitions. Now know I that Yahweh saves his anointed. He will hear him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of Yahweh our God. They are brought down and fallen, but we are risen and stand upright. Save Yahweh. Let the king hear us when we call. In that context, does it say, Yahweh saves his anointed. Let the king hear us when we call. This is also true in the 28th Psalm. Yahweh is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed. Save thy people, the people are the anointed, and bless thine inheritance. Feed them also, and lift them up forever. So it is evident that the children of Israel in general are the anointed of Yahweh God, and the apostles John and Paul both recognize that in their epistles. That anointing was received in the Old Testament, and it has not ever been changed. Yahshua Christ had said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. But ostensibly, they must hear him before they can follow. So they don't know all things just by some magic of the Spirit. The anointing was upon his sheep, the ancient children of Israel. If one is of Israel, one has that anointing. If one has the anointing, being of his sheep, one should be able to hear him. But hearing him 
is through the accounts of the prophets and the gospel. For this reason, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, Indeed, all who call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. How then would they call to him that they have not believed? And how would they believe of him they have not heard? And how would they hear apart from proclamation? And how would they proclaim unless they are sent? Just as it is written, a prophecy of the gospel, how fair are the feet of those bringing us good news of good tidings. But they have not all listened to the good message. Indeed, Isaiah says, Yahweh, who has believed our report? So then, faith is from hearing, but through hearing the word of Christ. So where John says, his anointing teaches us concerning all things. That does not mean that people simply know everything or anything without any form of study. In John chapter 6, we read, it is written in the prophets, and we had cited this very prophecy earlier, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that has heard and has learned of the Father cometh unto me, Christ speaking of men who read or studied the writings in the Old Testament. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 54, which we have already cited, where it says, And all thy children shall be taught of Yahweh. But earlier in Isaiah, in response to the sins of Israel, and especially of the priests and the prophets, we read in chapter 28, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. Then at the end of verse, I'm sorry, at the end of Isaiah chapter 29, one chapter later. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. But when he sees his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit, the spirit isn't enough by itself because men can err or make mistakes or sin in spirit, they also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. So just because one has the spirit of the Adamic man which is from God does not mean that one can know anything without study. Here John must have been expected his readers to have already acquired the knowledge in the gospel of Christ, and that is why he says to them, his anointing teaches us concerning all things, because it is they who would have his gospel. Then Paul had also written in Romans chapter 15, For whatsoever things were written aforetime, were written for our learning, 
that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. John is not advocating that we abandon study, as he wrote here, just as he has taught you, which also must be a reference to the accounts of the gospel. This seems to be what Paul also meant, where he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now we do not receive the spirit of the society, citing the Christogenian New Testament, of the world, if you will. But that spirit from Yahweh, in which case we should know the things granted to us by Yahweh, which also we speak of, not instructed in words of human wisdom, but instructed in of the spirit, by the spirit compounding with the spiritual. Now the natural man does not accept that of the spirit of Yahweh, for it is folly to him, and he is not able to know because it is inquired of spiritually. But the spiritual inquires into all things, and by it no one is examined. For who is known the mind of Yahweh? Who will instruct him? But we have the perception of Christ. Having the gospel and learning it, one may have the perception, or as the King James Version has it, the mind of Christ, because in the gospel his will is revealed. Christ being Yahweh God, through the gospel, one may begin to comprehend the will of God. So Paul wrote to Timothy in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, speaking in reference to the doctrine of God. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. Once again, we also see that to agree with Christ is to consent with his words. But, in the end, there is no learning without study. When you have the anointing, you are guided in your studies and are able to understand the Word of God. That's what John is saying here. He's not saying, give up the Scriptures, all you need is the Spirit, and you know everything because you have the anointing. That's not what he's saying, not at all. That's a fantasy conjured up by men who are slothful and would rather believe what they want to believe instead of believing what the scripture tells us is the truth. Now John refers to true freedom of speech, which is also in Christ. I recently had a, wow, I don't know what to call him perhaps an adversary, but he's not truly an adversary. He at least supposes to be a friend. I've recently had someone tell me that freedom of speech wasn't possible, that there is no free speech. But free speech is something that Christians should expect to have in Christ. There might be consequences because you're going to upset the world around you. But that is what a Christian should do. 
And now, children, you abide in him, that if he should appear, we would have free spokenness and would not be dishonored by him at his presence. So here John speaks about freedom of speech that we have before Christ at his coming, which if we are Christians and seek to obey him, we shall have. The Codex Sinaiticus wants the entire first clause of that verse, and now children, you abide in him. But the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Greca rightly explains how the admission, the omission, was most likely caused by a scribal error due to the similarity of the phrase at the end of verse 27, so I wouldn't think anything of it. <coughs> also, rather than at his presence at the end of this verse, the majority text has when he should appear. We have already cited Isaiah chapter 54, 13, where it says, And all thy children shall be taught of Yahweh. In the very next verse of that chapter, we read, In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. That's also a Christian expectation, so long as we are keeping the commandments and abiding Christ. The word translated as free spokenness here, which appears perhaps 31 times in the New Testament, is parasia. It is a compound word formed from a preposition and the word racist, which means speech. Racist, not racist. <laughs> racist. <laughs> There's no T on the end. So, racist, or I'm sorry, parasia, is defined by Liddell and Scott to mean outspokenness, frankness, freedom of speech. Something which was claimed by the Athenians as their privilege. In modern times, parasia should be claimed by God-fearing Christians as their own privilege, which is something that John also implies here. While the King James Version has confidence instead of free-spokenness, that is not the meaning of the word, and it actually obscures what is meant where it is used by the apostles. It seems that the King James Version often obscured the meaning of this word purposely in order to uphold the authority of the Church of England over men. However, its true meaning is evident in John chapter 7, where it says, speaking in reference to Christ, Howbeit no man spoke openly, that's the word parasia, which we see here as free spokenness, Howbeit no man spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So there we see the identity of the first oppressors of free speech is made evident. <laughs> because that's who's behind it all. Now, in contrast to his profession that many antichrists have already been born, John says in verse 29, the last verse in 1 John chapter 2, 
If you know that he is righteous, you also know that each who is practicing righteousness has been born from of him. And this is Christ. This is what is anointed. As opposed to Antichrist, which is those who stand opposed to the anointing of God. And they are the children of those who had originally rebelled against the order of God. For that reason, both Jude and Peter had associated the intruders into the assemblies of Christ with the angels that sinned in antiquity. When we read John chapter 3, we shall discover that where John refers to those who have been born of God, he certainly does refer to the circumstances of their physical birth, just as he is referred to the birth of the Antichrists earlier in this chapter, that many Antichrists had already been born. And with this, we shall end our presentation of 1 John chapter 2. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. We will return with the thought that we have just left off with, Yahweh willing, next week when we begin our commentary on John chapter 3. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.